0: On Wednesday of this week, Ukraine's state-run nuclear power company put out a brief statement. It said that the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in the southern part of the country had been damaged by Russian shelling. The plant has been under Russian control since March, and the United Nations recently sent inspectors there.
1: It is obvious that that the plant uh, and the physical integrity of the plant has been violated several times by chance by by uh, deliberation uh, we don't have the elements to assess that but this is a reality that we, we that we have to recognize and this is something that cannot continue to happen
0: the un is trying to establish a special protection zone around the plant to keep it and the neighboring areas safe
1: the ukrainian staff is still there they're basically being held prisoner working on the plant
0: That's Josh Keating. He's the global security reporter at Grid News, and he's written about zaporizhia.
1: And there have been concerns, you know, because there's been shelling around the plant, the uh, electricity that wires that run to the plant that keep its cooling systems working have been delivered. So there have been real concerns about a dangerous release of radiation uh, from that plant to the surrounding area. So as if the... uh, you know, other dangers of this war weren't bad enough for the area surrounding this plant, Um, they have to worry about the, you know, possibility of a three-mile island or Fukushima-type radiation release as well.
0: The ongoing saga of Zaporizhia feels like an encapsulation of both the best and worst of nuclear technology. Before the war, Josh says, Ukraine got about half its electricity from nuclear power— But since the Russian invasion, both the plant's fate and the specter of nuclear weapons use have hovered over
1: the conflict. This week, we saw Vladimir Putin threaten to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, and that's obviously been a major undercurrent to this entire conflict. But there's, you know, another kind of nuclear danger happening right here. And actually, the Ukrainian government has accused Russia of basically, like, weaponizing this plant of, uh, you know, if the uh, electricity... Is uh, you know cut off if it, if they're not able to reconnect it to the grid if they're not able to shut these reactors down um, there was real risk for a while and it's, it's less now but uh, there was real risk of of a of a sort of different kind of nuclear disaster uh, happening in the midst of this war.
0: Today on the show, Josh is going to break down a contradiction highlighted by the war in Ukraine how nuclear technology has become more important than ever thanks to a global energy crisis and climate change, but also how the ghosts of nuclear's past continue to haunt our present. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Before Russia's invasion of Ukraine pushed up energy prices and scrambled Europe's power supply, global attitudes toward nuclear power were decidedly mixed. Some countries were still scarred by past disasters, while others had embraced nuclear energy as part of a decarbonization strategy.
1: On the one hand, you have China, which I think is planning to build something like 150 nuclear reactors uh, in the coming years. Uh, you know, on the other hand, you have the U.S., where I think there's only one nuclear plant currently under construction, and it's been, you know, it's years behind schedule and billions of dollars uh, over budget. Because of the uh, expense, the amount of time it takes, and the public fear around nuclear power because of these high-profile por- high disasters, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, Fukushima, are kind of the three, you know, there's real not a lot of public enthusiasm for using nuclear power. And I think that's been starting to change. I think as, you know, climate change has become the sort of most salient environmental issue, I think a lot of people who were, Environmentalists, people who are concerned about climate change have been, you know, pushing for governments to take a second look at nuclear. What's happened now, you know, and it's somewhat ironic given that, you know, the what's happening in Zaporizhia has really highlighted the reasons why nuclear people nuclear power makes people nervous, is the war has is also prompting some of these governments that were phasing out nuclear power to delay those plans or or even reverse them.
0: And I want to kind of talk about that in depth, obviously, the energy crisis from this war is felt most acutely in Europe. I wonder if you could lay out how nuclear power fits into that equation and where it does.
1: Germany made the decision in 2011 after Fukushima to retire its existing nuclear plants. Germany currently has 17 nuclear reactors. Seven of the oldest were taken offline pending a safety review in the wake of Japan's nuclear crisis. It looks increasingly unlikely they'll ever operate again. This is a country where there's long been a very active and influential uh, anti-nuclear movement where the Green Party, which is actually one of the parties in the governing coalition in Germany right now, it it sort of traces its origins back to the anti-nuclear movement in the 70s and 80s. This is an issue that's like in that party's DNA, um, you know, going back decades. And so they were very intent on completing this process. You know, it's been controversial already because they shut down... These nuclear plants, it's one made it very difficult for them to accomplish their climate goals, it's meant that it's taken them longer to phase out coal power than uh, they were planning. And two, it made them very reliant on natural gas from Russia, which is, uh, you know, an issue that became very salient in February of this year when it became clear that, you know, German, uh, and other European energy purchases were basically funding Russia at the same time that, uh, Europe was putting sanctions on Russia.
0: Europe's sanctions on Russia and its support for Ukraine then caused the Russian government to cut off gas exports to Germany in retaliation. The German government needed a way to keep the lights on.
1: Germany has three nuclear reactors still operating, and they were due to be shut down at the end of this year. Uh, 2022 was the deadline. So basically what's happening now is two of them are going to be, they're going to keep them operating past this deadline, Uh, you know, Germany's headed into a very rough winter, probably with energy and natural gas shortages, probably with very high natural gas prices. They want, for political reasons, to stop buying any kind of power from Russia. So, you know, it really wasn't feasible to set down these plants right now. You know, this was a tough pill to swallow for the current German government, which is kind of a left-leaning government in which the Green Party uh, plays a major role. But I think most experts I talk to think this is a blip, that eventually they really are going to complete this shutdown.
0: Do you think within Europe the there is a focus at all on the climate aspects of this as well? Or or is it is it really we are in this crisis because energy prices for for fossil fuels are just so astronomical right now and we're and we're reliant on russia i mean like i wonder about france in this equation
1: yeah, well, France, which, which is very heavily dependent on nuclear power and which invested heavily in it starting in the 70s, um, has not been as exposed as countries like Germany to the kind of economic shocks we've seen uh, because of, of fuel prices. So a lot of people push nuclear power as a sort of climate solution. Yeah. And I understand that. And it makes sense. You know, the problem is Nuclear power plants take a long time to build, like you know, a decade if you're lucky. They're very expensive. So in terms of like a long-term power solution, it 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 might make sense. And it certainly makes sense not to shut down existing sources of zero emissions energy, you know, while we're trying to make this energy transition. But you know, we need to cut emissions now in the next decade, and and um, nuclear isn't necessarily the answer to that.
0: It's easy to understand why countries facing down a winter of brutal energy prices are revisiting nuclear energy. It's gotten so desperate in Germany that they've even fired up old coal plants to generate power this year. But even the U.S., which hasn't felt the same degree of energy price disruption from the Ukrainian war, is giving nuclear power a second look.
1: At the same time all this was happening, in September in California— lawmakers there approved uh governor Gavin Newsom's plan to keep the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant which provides about 10% of California's power open past 2025 when it was due to be shut down that's California state which also has a lot of anti-nuclear activism so so that's sort of a sign that you know even though the US isn't as exposed Uh, to these disruptions as Europe, you know, we're also facing uh, high energy prices. We're also trying to decarbonize, well, some places more than others in the US are trying to decarbonize and uh, that, you know, that's going to be very hard to do if you're shutting down uh, major sources of emissions-free power. So, you know, there's that aspect of it. And, you know, then there's also, question of investments in, um, you know, new nuclear technologies. There's a lot of excitement about so-called modular nuclear reactors, which are, you know, smaller and maybe can be like assembled, you know, the, the major components can be assembled in a factory and moved to the site rather than built, built on, on site, site which, yeah. which might help some of these issues with you know, how much this costs and how long it takes to build. I mean, that, that's pretty new technology and um, there's a lot of hope around it, but, um, you know, we'll have to see how that, how that pans out.
0: When we come back, how green is nuclear energy really?
1: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early
0: one's reaction to nuclear power and, and the risks of it, like, it's like this weird little Rorschach test for how old you are, where and when you were born, like, when you came of age. I'm an American. I'm 46. I don't remember Three Mile Island. I was three, but I do remember Chernobyl. Like, it's one of the first news events that I have some kind of lizard brain memory of, and I, I was just wondering, like, as you were starting to to write the story and work on this reporting, like, where where does this lodge for you?
1: Reading uh, Svetlana Alekseyevich's book, Voices from Chernobyl, mm. was like one of the most dramatic books I've ever read. Uh, and obviously Fukushima is um, something that's sort of a more recent memory for me. Because the climate crisis is the kind of dominant environmental issue on the agenda right now it uh, it it kind of pushes some of these other concerns to the yeah. side where, you know, as, you know, for most of the 20th century, or the, you know, last quarter of the 20th century at least, the idea that environmentalists would be embracing nuclear power would have been a very strange idea. I mean, you know, like I said before, in Germany, like the Green Party started as an anti-nuclear party. And, and I think that uh, they, it has been a real kind of paradigm shift, this idea of... Um, you know, uh, nuclear power being a green uh, source of energy.
0: One aspect of Josh's reporting that really stood out to me is how Japan, which endured both the U.S. nuclear bomb and the Fukushima disaster in 2011, is rethinking nuclear energy.
1: This is the only country to have suffered uh, from a nuclear bomb attack. And, you know, people have there have had what, you know, some specialists call a nuclear allergy. And so that applies not just to nuclear weapons, but to nuclear power as well. And there was a famous incident the Lucky Dragon incident in the 1950s where this fishing boat was contaminated as a result of a U.S. nuclear test in the Pacific and sparked, you know, major public panic around, um, you know, seafood in in Japan. And and that issue, that uh, crisis was actually like what inspired the original movie Godzilla, uh, which, you know, if you want to talk about popular culture, that like really reflects the society's, um, you know, fears about nuclear energy.
0: The Monarch team surmised that the atomic signature of our nuclear submarine stirred this Gojira from slumber. Six days ago, the target was spotted on an intercept course with the Bikini Atoll, part of our Pacific Proving Grounds, and the site of a top secret operation, codenamed Lucky Dragon.
1: But, you know, Japan is an island and it has to import the vast majority of its fuels. And uh, during the post-war economic boom, it it needed the power. And that became even more uh, cued and in the 1970s with the oil crises. And then, you know, there were all these issues with air pollution there uh, in the 1980s. I mean, uh, you know, people people talk about like brown skies and smog in in china now but like in in for during japan's economic boom like it, it faced many of the same concerns so you know by 2010 they were the third largest nuclear power generator in the world and then uh fukushima happened and their nuclear output basically plunged to zero it began with the strongest earthquake in japan's history then the radiation came they idled most of their plants and announced plans to phase it out entirely by 2040. Uh, and they're already sort of starting to back away from that. I think, you know, power power prices really increased. You know, they, they took a the look at the numbers with their emissions goals, which are, you know, by international standards, fairly ambitious and realized they'd be tough to meet without nuclear power. So they're already starting to bring some of these plants back online and then came the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you know, Russia was one of their sources of liquid natural gas. You know, now for the first time, you know, polls show, uh, the first time since Fukushima at least, polls show that a majority of the Japanese public support greater use of nuclear power. And uh, they've announced plans, they've gone farther than Germany. They're not only keeping plants operational and bringing idle plants back online, but, you know, the the government there has announced new investments in, you know, these so-called next generations nuclear power plants. So, you know, if you want to find a place that's done a complete 180, uh, I think Japan's kind of the best example of that.
0: What was the thing that that finally executed that 180? Was it just looking at natural gas prices in the wake of the war? or Or had public sentiment shifted back far enough toward nuclear that that was a a softer sell.
1: Yeah. I mean, I wonder how much it was kind of pushing on an open door, how much they, uh, you know, sentiment was already moving that way gradually. And then this sort of shock from the Russian invasion kind of um, pushed things through. So uh, I'd say it's a combination of factors. I think it's, it's the economics the politics and the climate goals all kind of work together. It has major nuclear power capacity already built. It just had these plants that were idled. And so it's it's sort of less complicated to sort of bring them back online. You know, Germany is so close to the finish line of their shutdown already. I mean, they were hmm. due to be done with this now, basically, by the end of this year. So uh, I, I think that's why most people you talk to think that this is like... A diversion on the road to uh, a phase out rather than a 180 because, you know, they they basically made plans for workers to be retired, for these plants to be shut down. And it would just logistically, it'd be very difficult for them to um, reverse course at this point. Whereas Japan, I think like because they had this capacity already, like it was a solution that was there and it was just a matter of uh, bringing the public on board.
0: Josh's work makes clear that enthusiasm and public money for nuclear power seem to come in waves. Take, for example, the surge in nuclear investment after the 1970s oil crisis. And what's unclear right now is whether this current interest in nuclear power is temporary or something more long-term.
1: I think the thing that got myself and my co-author Dave Levitan like really interested in this story was was the kind of like time lag that happens with nuclear power, where it's often, you know, big public policy shifts, whether it's toward nuclear or away from it, tend to come in response to, you know, short-term political shocks. So there's either a Chernobyl or a Fukushima, or there's you know, an oil crisis in the seventies or or right now. It's so, you know, politicians see these events, they need a solution and, and that leads them to sort of go all in on nuclear or go all out on nuclear. Um, the problem is like, because of the nature of the technology, like those short-term decisions lock you into a very kind of long-term path. Boris Johnson, before he left office in the UK, it said he wants, you know, the UK to start looking into uh, building more nuclear plants. So maybe that's something we'll see there as well um, as they uh, are also facing this energy crunch. So it's, it's like decisions taken now because for the understandable reason and very valid reason that these governments don't want to buy any more gas and oil from Vladimir Putin, um, is sort of going to lead to decisions that you know governments ten years from now are going to be like dealing with the ramifications of.
0: There are some polls in the U.S. that have shown kind of record high support for nuclear energy, and you know that is often couched in in climate related language. How much do we know about whether nuclear energy really is a helpful tool in moving toward a you know decarbonization future?
1: Yeah, well, I mean it it's a clean source of energy. I mean it it generates some emissions in the mining of uranium, which is a pretty carbon intensive process and, you know, building these giant cement casings uh is not like carbon neutral, but once they're operating, I mean they they have essentially no emissions. In terms of effectiveness, I would say that like keeping existing nuclear plants operating certainly makes sense as a uh, climate solution. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, for all the safety risks and fears about, you know, new Fukushima's or even new Chernobyl's, I mean, the the if you look at the numbers and the number of people who are killed by nuclear power plant radiation in the last, you know, 50 years or so compared to how many are cold, killed by coal emissions in one year, it's like not even close, but... You know, the issue is again, the timelines. It's like, we need rapid decarbonization now in the next 10 years. And like these plants take a long time to build. Uh, even in the best of circumstances, they usually take even longer because of the kind of un- very understandable, uh, safety regulations that are put on them. And they're, they're very expensive. So it's, you know, it's not the answer as to like, how do we keep, get on a like, degree warming, two degree warming pathway in the next 10 years. Uh, In terms of like a long term, how do we provide electricity, carbon free electricity for the planet, you know, beyond the next 10 years into the next century? Like, yeah, nuclear could be a part of that. Um, Hopefully, you know, there are sort of future advancements in this technology that people are working on now that make it not only safer, but like quicker and cheaper to build. Um, you know, that I know there's a lot of people working on those technologies. I know, like, the Biden administration in its, like, uh, climate plans is also interested in investing in those technologies. So um, we'll see if that pans out.
0: Josh Keating, thank you so much. Thank you. Joshua Keating is a reporter covering global security for GRID. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Jonathan Fisher. Joanne Levine is the executive producer for What Next. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and it's also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you are a fan of this show, I have a request for you. Become a Slate Plus member. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up and get your podcasts ad-free. All right, we will be back next week with more episodes. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.